Recently, I stumbled on an article from uh, the New Yorker magazine about, a, about fraud in the organic food industry. A guy named Randy Constant had been passing off regular corn and soybeans as organic. And uh, he did this for decades. He ended up making millions of dollars before he got caught. I found it to be a surprisingly intriguing story, even though there was nothing particularly surprising about the crime. I mean, I figure people uh, learn how to cheat in pretty much every industry. I'd assume it would be the same in organic food. But I, I found it sad to read about the details of this story. All the farmers and regulators who, who suspected that Randy Constant was up to no good, yet they didn't do anything to intervene. I find that kind of thing frustrating, the way it erodes public trust. If people have doubts about the integrity of organic labels, then they're less likely to pay for it. And if they don't pay for organics, then honest farmers have no incentive to avoid the kinds of harmful chemicals that destroy the environment and undermine human health. And ironically, that's one reason that, the, that not many insiders spoke up about this Randy Constant guy. No one in organics wanted the bad publicity. There wasn't even much mention of the ordeal after the con man's conviction because it was, it was both embarrassing and kind of discouraging to discuss. In reading this lengthy New York article about this crime, I realized that I too found it kind of depressing. And yet, at the same time, I couldn't stop reading about it. I noticed that I just kept reading this article about this man's deception maybe in part due to some kind of morbid fascination. It reminded me of all those anti-hero stories that have become popular recently, like, you know, we watch, watch mafia crimes and the Sopranos and drug crimes and Breaking Bad. Even serial killer crimes are popular these days. And yet, even when this particular article wasn't interesting, I just kept reading, also in part because I wanted to know how the story ended. What were the consequences for Randy Constant's crimes? Did he eventually get what, was, what he had coming to him? Was there any justice at all in the end? I wonder if perhaps this is also part of what keeps us reading about King David and the Bathsheba affair as well. It's partly an intriguing crime saga but then we also want to know if David got what was coming to him. Especially since we know it wasn't just an affair, of course. There was also murder involved, potentially rape. This is another really disturbing story to have in our Christian scriptures. And yet here we are still talking about it thousands of years later. Even as similar true stories about abuse continue today. Now we also read about King David alongside stories of Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby and Larry Nassar. And we keep watching, hoping to see justice done in the end. That these men too will get what they have coming to them. It seems like the trajectory is somewhat familiar in each case as each person seems to have made a series of bad choices that led further into evil. 
Like how David chose to lounge around the castle one spring instead of going to war with his troops. He made a choice to exploit the public trust of his office. David then made inappropriate inquiries about a woman he saw from a distance. A woman who turned out to be married. He ordered his subordinates to bring her to him. And shamefully, they obeyed. After taking advantage of Bathsheba, David then tried to cover up his actions. But it didn't work because Uriah was too righteous. So he had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. Some of David's other soldiers were also sacrificed in order to make Uriah go away. It's somewhat fascinating to see how one transgression led to another, to another, and how he almost got away with it. But of course, part of the good news of David's story is that he did not actually get away with it. That's not how the story ends. This king thought he was above the law, but God saw what he had done and judged it as evil. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I shall repay. So after today's reading, there are a series of events in which David is held to account for his sins. First, the prophet Nathan confronts him about it. God brings forth someone to speak truth to power saying, actually, David, you are that sinful man, the one who deserves to be punished. Then, even though David confesses and asks for forgiveness, he still loses the child he conceived with Bathsheba. And eventually, the kingdom itself is taken away from him for a while after one of his other children turns against him. David ends up running for his life for a good 13 years It's not quite prison, but something similar. Surely there's there's some justice there. Some at least. That's kind of how it was for this organic farming fraud guy, Randy Constant, as well. Toward the end of the long article I read, it started to come out that Randy liked to go to Vegas. And the richer he got from his con artist schemes, the more he would spend on gambling and drugs and escorts. His exploits became increasingly debased. So it's not particularly surprising that after having been sentenced to federal prison, Randy Constant ended up taking his own life. One could say that his crimes did eventually catch up with him, even though he didn't actually go to jail. There is some justice there. But I still found the whole thing to just be sad. And at the end, Randy Constant's story was pretty unsatisfying. I mean, the death of a criminal doesn't doesn't exactly make things right for his victims. It might even make things worse. What about all the people who Randy Constant defrauded? And he still damaged the reputation of other organic farmers, not to mention what it all must have done to his family. Similarly, as far as King David is concerned, we might wonder, what about Bathsheba? How did she feel about everything that happened? The story doesn't even say. Mostly all we read is about sin 
and its consequence, and maybe not even as much consequence as we would like. Instead, in David's case, there's not merely justice here, but something else. We find that there's also a good bit of of mercy and grace, which is not normally a part of these other stories we hear about in the news. And that's because in God's eyes, mere justice alone, it's not enough. That's what sets apart this biblical story from so many others. God has always known that justice alone, while partially good, it's never enough to fully satisfy us. Justice alone doesn't fix things. It doesn't make things better. Sometimes it can even make things worse. For example, this is, this is a topic that the lawyer and civil rights activist Brian Stevenson has devoted his whole life to. He has a book called Just Mercy, which has also been made into a movie. It's about Stevenson's work to defend death row inmates and abolish the death penalty, particularly in southern states. He also has a nonprofit called the Equal Justice Initiative, EJI. And I'll no- I will note that Stevenson is a committed Christian, and his work is very much rooted in the gospel, even though he doesn't always frame it that way since he's mostly active in secular courtrooms. Well, the problem, Stevenson says, is that our criminal justice system has been so focused on punishing wrongdoing that it's often more punitive than restorative. For instance, under three three strikes laws, some low-level drug offenders may face life sentences that cost the public millions of dollars, while other violent offenders, usually black or brown, they may face the death penalty, even though they pose no real threat to society, and they could be rehabilitated. So at the end of the day, an eye for an eye only causes the public more harm. This isn't justice, says Stevenson. It's retribution. True justice requires giving wrongdoers the opportunity, the obligation to make amends. It means them trying to repay their debt to society, not simply killing them or locking them up. And when we do make true justice possible, then mercy actually becomes a part of it. True justice can and should also be merciful. That's why Stevenson's book is called Just Mercy. And that's also exactly what we see in the story of King David. God sees the evil that David does and holds him to account. But that's not the end of the story either. In spite of his crimes, God chooses not to have David killed the way David had Uriah killed. Instead, after David confesses and repents, he's assured that God's love and blessing will continue with him in spite of his sin. And so eventually, after his punishment has ended, David does return to power and ends his 40-year reign on a high note. Because our God is not only the God of justice, but also the God of mercy and grace. 
Now, this isn't to say that the whole thing was simply brushed under the rug and forgotten. David's sin continues to be a huge stain on his legacy. And that, too, is fitting. Because forgiveness does not mean that sins are forgotten. Instead, it means that all of us must now wrestle with the fact that David was both a king who abused his power and a man after God's own heart. We, too, are now confronted with our own sense of justice and mercy. And hopefully, all being well, David's story is then used to lead others towards a kind of just mercy. Because where sin abounds, grace is meant to abound all the more. And isn't that a better ending than it would be if David were to have died in prison or taken his own life? Even for Bathsheba, surely this was a better scenario. Instead of becoming a destitute widow, she lived out her days in a palace. In spite of the sins committed against her, Bathsheba became the mother of the next king, King Solomon. And hopefully, she was given what she needed to heal. There are no guarantees, of course. I still continue to wonder how Bathsheba felt about the whole thing. If she was ever able to really forgive David, we'll, we'll probably never know. But in the meantime, I suspect that it was also stories like this one that helped Jesus to forgive those who sinned against him. Because Jesus also had to wrestle with the fact that his ancestors included both David and Bathsheba. He himself was descendant of both perpetrator and victim. I wonder if this came to mind as Jesus was facing the cross. As Judas, his friend, was betraying him. And Peter, his friend, was denying him. And the crowd as a whole was cheering at his execution. Jesus continued to pray not for retribution or vengeance, but for mercy, for forgiveness and grace. Because in the end, that is what saves the world. That is the end which God is working for in all of our lives. And isn't that a better conclusion to the story? I invite you to consider this morning how justice and mercy might work together in a story from your own life, or perhaps a story you may have heard recently that caused you some distress. So often we may hear things on the news, read articles, or others tell us about experiences they've had, and we we can't help but think to ourselves, oh, I hope that person gets what they deserve. These stories, they do bring up righteous anger in us. We can become anxious about them, wanting to know if justice will be done. On some level, maybe we know that we might be better off if we could just let it go, not allow it to stress us out. But at the same time, that also might feel like a betrayal. Since after all, it's not okay to just forget about injustice or turn a blind eye. That might make us complicit as if we were enabling this evil to continue. So here's an alternative. 
when we find ourselves stuck on some wrong that someone did, we can try to think about what, what grace might look like for everyone involved. The perpetrators, the victims, society in general, everyone. And then we can pray especially for the offenders the way that Jesus did. We can pray that God would bring about that that sweet spot where justice and mercy meet. This would still mean that the truth would be told and consequences enforced. But instead of retribution as the goal, the goal would be restoration and healing, maybe even transformation. Praying for enemies also helps us to have compassion on them, which aids us in forgiveness, which allows all of us also to heal. I invite you to try that with me today. Let let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the example of King David, not for his sin, but for your justice and mercy, and provision in the midst of it. We thank you for holding wrongdoers to account and also for forgiving your people when we repent. We ask that you would help us also to be gracious followers of Jesus. Where we have seen sin abound, may your grace abound all the more. And this morning we lift up to you the evildoers who are known to us the liars and cheats and frauds. We ask both for your justice and your mercy for those who, like David, have abused their power and the trust of others. For those who have done violence, even murder, have mercy and restore your people. We ask that the truth would be exposed and told and remembered. We ask that penalties would be paid, restitution given, and space made for forgiveness and healing and even reconciliation. Help us to forgive those who sin against us so that we would not be ruled by hatred. May we all instead be transformed more into the likeness of your son Jesus who died to set us free. We pray these things in his name. Amen.